Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. So what do you do when another brother or sister mistreats you? When someone in the family of God wrongs you, they steal from you, they cheat you, they slander you. What do you do when you've been wronged? How does a gospel-shaped community handle disputes and grievances between believers? How do we handle these internal family disputes when one member has done another member wrong? I had a friend who had someone in the church approach him and ask my friend if he would lend him several thousand dollars. My friend came to me and asked me what I thought, and I told him to pray about it and whatever the Lord revealed to him that he should do. But I also told him that he should prepare to never see it returned. Well, sure enough, he loaned the person the money. And that person is yet to this day to ever pay him back and now says that it was a gift and not a loan. What do you do when you've been wronged? What do you do when you've been taken advantage of? Here's where we're headed today. If you want to just know the sermon in a sentence, the big idea, if you will, is simply this. And for my English teachers, I know this is not grammatically correct. But you don't have to do wrong when you've been done wrong. You don't have to do wrong when you've been done wrong. You see, in Corinth, legal action, litigation was part of everyday life. But it was also a form of entertainment. And that part of the world, when problems arose and they couldn't settle it between themselves, they would assign a private citizen to arbitrate along then with also a a third neutral person. And if that failed, they would go to a court where there would be 40 jurors and an arbitrator on each side. If that failed, they would go to a jury where there would be several hundred to several thousand jurors. And every citizen over the age 30 was subject to serve as a juror. Interestingly though, every person had to to serve as an arbitrator for one side of a party in a debate the 60th year of his life. So most citizens were involved in legal proceedings all the time. The Corinthians had been so used to arguing, so used to persuading, winning debates, disputing, and taking one another to court that those old habits now invaded the church. They were wronging each other And then they were taking to each other to court when they wronged each other. And Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, listen, you don't have to do wrong when you've been wronged. The Jews had always settled their disputes in private or in a synagogue court. For the Jews to not settle it within the the body, they believed it would mean that God, through his own people, using his own word, was not competent to solve problems. 
And so the Romans, they let the Jews try to, uh, try to do everything they could to solve their own offenses, their own problems within themselves, except that the Romans wouldn't allow the Jews to, to establish the death penalty. They reserved that for themselves. The Jews could imprison people. They could beat people. Whatever punishment was necessary but the, but the Jews were allowed to do that. And Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, listen, you guys are taking one another to court. You're taking stuff that should be happening in here. You're taking it out there. And God has never handled his business that way. So then what do you do when you've been wronged? We're back in 1 Corinthians this morning, and now we're in chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. And as you've just gotten comfortable, I will ask you to rise yet again for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired, infallible, precious word. Beloved, God is speaking. He says, Does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints would judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we would judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with the matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who would be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Listen carefully. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be defrauded. But on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, and you do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Aren't you thankful for verse 11? Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Amen, brother. So what do you do when you've been wronged by another believer? Well, the first thing Paul tells us is he says, hey, reach a solution. Reach a solution. Verse 1, he says, hey, what do you do? I mean, do, do you even dare to go to law when you have a case against your neighbor? That word can mean grievance. It's the word there when it says a case. It's really the word that we get our word pragmatic from. It means, what do you do when you have just a thing, an issue, just a normal grievance with your brother? 
I mean, do you get mad and seek revenge? Do you just stew and pretend there's no issue and then withhold love and fellowship? Or when you have that, do you say hurtful things and lash out? Do you go off? Do, do you seek a lawyer because your reputation has been marred? Paul says, reach a solution using the body of Christ. But that's not what they were doing. They were eager to go to court. Paul, in his disbelief, says, does anyone really dare to do this? Dare is the, really the first word in the text. If you go to the Greek, dare is the first word, and it's there because it's emphatic. Do you really dare to do this? Dare, as you know, is the idea of bringing oneself to do something. Paul is shocked that they would bring themselves to, to air their dirty laundry out before unbelievers. And the tense of the word dare indicates that they were doing this over and over again. In other words, this was the way of life for this church. As mentioned earlier, Greek culture loved to take people to court. Men were proud of showing how well they could argue, persuade, and win cases. This was a secular culture and it came involved in, to be in the church. And Paul says, don't, don't even dare to do that. Reach a solution in the body of Christ. Now let's clarify a few things before we move on. Because if you're thinking what I'm thinking, then you need something here. Paul is not talking about that if there's embezzlement or abuse or sexual abuse or criminal or illegal matters going on in the church that we shouldn't take that to court. That's not what he's talking about because the word there in the text, it also says this, to handle these small matters. So we should always seek legal action if there's criminal activity. I'm for that. And we would do that. So he's talking about not ever using secular courts because Paul himself even appealed to Caesar. So Paul's not going to contradict himself. The things he's talking about here are the issues that get blown out of proportion. Also, his concern is not that secular courts won't give believers a fair hearing. But his concern really is the lack of respect for the church's authority and responsibility to settle its own disputes. Paul then begins to give them a few arguments why we're not to go to a secular court and why we have the ability to handle things in the body of Christ. In verse 2, he says, listen, do you not know that we're going to judge the world? I mean, we're, why take family problems outside to the world when we're going to judge the world? All the resources of truth, all, all wisdom, justice, love, generosity, and understanding reside in the people of God. When we take each other to a worldly court, we openly confess that we don't have the right heart or attitude toward our believer, our believer brothers and sisters. In other words, believers who go to court with each other show they're more concerned with revenge than they are about the glory of Jesus. If we all have the resources of heaven and can't settle a dispute, if we have the resources of heaven, and we can't settle a dispute, what makes us think that the world who doesn't have the resources of heaven can settle it for us? That's what he's saying. So Paul says, we are able to do this. That you're competent, he says in verse 2. Don't, don't you know that you're competent? The idea here is that these were not legal matters and major. They were mostly matters really related to covetousness. He says, do you not know? In other words... 
You really do know, and I can't believe that you're acting as if you don't know. We're going to judge the world. Jesus is going to establish his earthly kingdom during the millennial reign of Jesus for a thousand years. And during that time, the saints are going to rule and judge the world. Revelation chapter 2, 26 and 27 says, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessel of potter are broken to pieces as I also received authority from my father. So Paul is really saying here, listen to me. You and I are going to sit on the supreme court of the world. So what makes us think we can't solve little things in the church? That's what he's saying. Resolve the issue. Then in verse 3, he says, hey, you know what? We're even going to judge angels. That, that's staggering to me. At the beginning of the millennial reign of the Lord, Jesus Christ will overthrow the Antichrist at Megiddo and all of his armies and the armies of the world. Jesus is going to overthrow it. The returning saints will participate as spectators of the destruction of world powers. Thus, this will end the time of the Gentiles. And the surviving remnant of Jewish people will go on into the millennial kingdom as Christ's ambassadors and administrators of an earthly kingdom. But you see, Satan not only has rule over some of the heavenlies as he does in the earth. And at the end of the millennial age, after that thousand years, God will judge Satan and the angels of Satan. And believers, you and I will have a share in that. I don't know how. I don't know what it will look like. I don't know if we will get to judge fallen angels for their sin. But in my study, it seems that this is the word judge means to rule or to govern. In other words, during that time, we will be given the ability to govern over what angels even do. His point is this. If we are to help even with supernatural things, we certainly should be able to handle the natural things. If we're going to judge the world, even angels, certainly we could set up something to help with disputes in the church. Said differently, this is really not about what needs to be done in court. This is really about what needs to be done within the congregation. Then he moves to one final argument, verses 4 and 5. He says, so if you have law courts dealing with matters, do you appoint them as judges who can't really handle stuff in the church? I say this to your shame. I mean, isn't it, isn't it unthinkable that we can't find just one person to help us in the church? This could probably be better translated, do you appoint them, meaning secular judges, do you appoint them to deal with affairs in the church? The apostle's not slamming secular judges or secular lawyers. He was saying that a secular judge who does not understand the relationship of one Christian to another and that Christian to Jesus has no concept of the family of God and therefore can't understand how to deal with the family of God. So, whether honorable or not, if they have not been born again, no judge or no arbitrator can be possibly qualified to judge in spiritual matters. They were running to the world to resolve things that should be handled between brothers and sisters in the church, and they weren't. And Paul says, that is shameful. Paul is ashamed of their behavior. Certainly somebody in the church could be found to help. The fact that there isn't or that they haven't sought one is what Paul is ashamed of. 
You may not have picked this out, but because we are a Baptist church, I want to tell you that's why we do government the way we do government. That's why Baptist churches are autonomous and we don't have anybody else over us. From this text, you can see the immense importance of the congregational form of government. The development of an ecclesiastical form in which men have rule over a church and then over a group of churches and then over a larger group of churches is nowhere found in Scripture. Churches are to handle their own business inside the church. Nevertheless, Paul says, if we cannot settle things, then we should ask another Christian to help. And then, listen, Paul then even says, and then if they help, whatever decision they make is the decision we abide by. We don't have to do wrong when we've been done wrong. At minimum, the way we deal with sin in the church, our justice in the church, should be superior to the system of justice we find in the world. We should reach a solution in the body because we have the spirit of wisdom, the Holy Spirit of wisdom living inside of us. We have the Holy Word of God to guide us and we have the Holy Hand of God to provide for us. And so many times we think we need to go to outsource sources. God says, hey, I want you to come to me. If we would judge the world and judge angels, we ought to be able to settle disputes right here in our own church. Amen? So he says, reach a solution. But then he says, Realize the setback. Realize the setback. There's huge irony in verses 6 and 7. Earlier in chapter 5, if you will remember, the church was unwilling to deal with something in the body called incest. And they avoided judging a member inside their church while they were still judging those outside the church. Here, they are judging a member inside the church, and now what? Trying to take it outside the church. If we don't resolve the issue and we decide to take it elsewhere, there's tremendous setback and loss. This kind of behavior puts the church under a cloud of suspicion before the very people we're supposed to be reaching. This loss, Paul says, if you see it there, he says, actually then in verse 7, it is already a defeat for you. This loss, this loss happens when we wrong each other and it results in the loss of fellowship among the believers and then the witness that we have to the unbelieving world. These are brothers wronging brothers, sisters wronging sisters. They are not showing or demonstrating that the gospel has the resources to help us with our problems. And again, this language indicates they were doing it over and over again. And here's what saddens Paul, is that you're doing this stuff before unbelievers. Paul says it's already a defeat. Listen, even before you get to court, and even before you get a major win, you have already lost. When we go before the world with things that should be taken care of in the church, our brothers are hurt, and the gospel is going to be ineffective. In Corinth at that time, there were about 700,000 people living there. Paul uses the word shame in verse 5, and here says it's, it's a defeat. In a city of 700,000, can you imagine how fast word would travel that the believers are treating each other this way? I wonder then what Paul would say about believers taking and airing their stuff out on social media today. 
right now, and this isn't, it changes every day and every hour, so I'm not trying to be right. I'm just trying to give you the effect. There's over 65 million on Twitter. There's 105 million on Instagram, and there's 68 million on Facebook. So we had better be careful when we post a complaint or a dispute of those kind of things amongst each other there. Because it would harm each other and it will harm the witness of those who are watching. Da Vinci's Last Supper is a famous painting of Jesus eating with His disciples and it's located currently in the, in the hall of a convent in Milan, Italy. And as Da Vinci was finishing his famous painting, he asked a friend of his, he says, hey, would you critique my painting? And so the, the, the friend was saying, well, hey, look, there's all of Jesus, uh, Jesus' disciples there with Him. The look on their face is one of just like confusion because Jesus has just told them that one of them is going to betray them and they're looking at each other like, is it going to be me? But then his friend says, well, Da Vinci, listen, the the best thing I think about the whole painting is that, that, that golden goblet right in the center of the table. It is exquisite. You have done a masterful job at that. That's my favorite part. When Da Vinci heard that, he took his paintbrush And he painted out that cup so it wasn't there anymore. And he said these words. He said, friend, I never want anything to distract from the face of Jesus. And brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, that should be our goal. We should not allow anything to happen in between us that's going to distract from King Jesus. We need to take the paintbrush of God's grace and paint it on out so that the world can hear about our King and we don't have to harm one another. We don't have to do wrong when we've been done wrong. We reach a solution, then remember the setback. And then the third thing is resolve to suffer. Resolve to suffer, verse 7, he says, actually then it's already a defeat. But then he says, listen, why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Paul says, if you are right and they are wrong, it would be better for you to suffer wrong than to take them to court. If they've borrowed money and they haven't paid it, it would be better to lose money and be taken advantage of than to take them to court. You see, I know this and you know this. It's hard when we know we're right and know that we have been done wrong. It's hard to give up our sense of justice. The Bible is telling us that it is wrong to insist on our rights with trivial matters when it will harm another brother or sister. That seems very harsh. (laughs) Like the language there, why not rather be wrong? Why not be... It sounds harsh. It seems insensitive. But yet Paul was fully convinced that God is a God of justice. And God fully knows how to take care of His own. Do you believe that? I believe that. Paul believes that the Lord would intervene. There would be loss... But the one who does it according to God's way, even though he loses, will be rewarded. Amen? When a person goes outside of the church, he is selfish and he discredits the power, wisdom, and work of God, and he tries to get what he wants through the judgment of unbelievers and in a way that's not prescribed. So Paul says we should be willing to be defrauded and wronged than take another believer to court. In other words, Paul said, it is better to lose in any possible way than to lose spiritually. We should be able to forgive and leave the matter in God's hands 
When we are wronged and defrauded, we should be forgiving and not bitter, because in the eyes of God, it is better to be sued and lose than it is to sue and win. And when we are wrong, it is better to cast it on the Lord and trust that He sees and will deal with it. And, and I've done some study this week amongst lawyers and amongst cases, and here's something that I found out. Reading the reports, after major cases were won, most lawyers say that even when people win over these kind of things, even when they come and they win their case, they're still just as bitter and still resentful as they was before they won the case. This is not going to solve the issues. So people, what are we to do? We don't have to do wrong when we've been done wrong. As a follower of Christ, we lay down our rights. Matthew 5, 39-41, Jesus says, But I say to you, don't resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go two. If you follow Jesus, it will mean laying down your rights. Jesus said it and showed it with his life. And Peter would have been an eyewitness of this. And so Peter writes some things in 1 Peter 2. He says this, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return, and while suffering, he uttered no threats, and here's the key, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Did you see it? Jesus didn't do any wrong, but yet when he had been done wrong, he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Jesus laid down his rights, and this, Paul says, and Peter says, is the example we are to follow. We are to suffer wrong and entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. A farmer who was an atheist wrote to a newspaper columnist boasting of his unbelief in God and telling of the experiment that he had just made. He said, this past spring, he said, I plowed my fields on a Sunday. I cultivated my fields on a Sunday. I fertilized my field on a Sunday. I planted my field on a Sunday. I weeded my field on a Sunday. And I reaped a great harvest bigger than I've ever reaped before on a Sunday. What do you think of that? <laughs> Newspaper columnist responded, Well, sir, God does not always make full reckoning on a Sunday. And I want you to know there will be a payday Sunday. Nobody will ever get away with anything because Jesus is Lord. Nobody will get away with anything. Our identity in Christ allows us to resolve to suffer. Christ bore the ultimate defrauding and wrongdoing in our place. He was defrauded of what was rightfully His to give us what we never should have. He absorbed all of our wrongs, all of our attacks, and all of our rejections so that we now can forgive. You and I can choose to punish or we can choose to forgive. Jesus took our punishment so that we could forgive. You can make people pay or you can forgive. 
Jesus voluntarily paid so that we could forgive. We can absorb the cost of being wronged because a wrong done to us doesn't affect our identity. If we are financially wronged, our identity is not in finances. If we are wronged socially, our identity is not in our social status. If we are wronged in our reputation, our reputation is not in our reputation. Our reputation is in Jesus. And so we read these words, I've summarized it, that Christ suffered every imaginable wrong to make you and I unimaginably right. And we don't have to do wrong when we've been done wrong because He was done wrong so that we don't have to do wrong. Can I just remind you, if someone mistreats you, God will never mistreat you. He will always judge justly because no one gets away with anything in the kingdom of God. And you and I can resolve to suffer because we can trust the one that judges righteously. I made two things a goal in my life. I don't say it often, but these are the things that are two goals in my life. One is, is with all that lies in me, I try not to be offensive. I try to be kind and considerate of others. And yet, while I try not to be offensive, I've found that no matter how hard I try, I'm going to offend some people. Amen? It still doesn't mean, though, that I don't have the goal to not be offensive. But, but, but see, secondly, and almost more importantly, is another goal I have in my life is I try hard not to be offended. And beloved, it's only because of the Lord Jesus I can do either. So we have to reach a solution, remember the setback, resolve the suffering, very quickly then react from our salvation. React from our salvation because verses 8-11, through 11, this gets tricky and dicey, amen? You're like, oh no, pastor, we're going to talk about sin? Well, I guess we have to if we're going to talk about Jesus, amen? When we do this to our brothers, we're revealing something, is what Paul's saying. When we do this and treat one another this way and then take each other to court, Paul says we're revealing something, and that's what he's saying. Listen carefully. He's saying that if you continue to do this, continue, that's the key word, then you may be self-deceived about your own salvation. That's what he says. Paul says don't be deceived. Do you see it there? Verse 9, don't be deceived. That word deceived is the word from where we get our word planet. The ancients were puzzled by the movements of the planets and considered those planets to be wanderers in space. The word means to go astray or to wander. It's the idea of being self-deceived because I go astray from what is the truth and I wander away from the truth. I'm deceived. The point. Paul is saying that people who think they can go on living immoral lives and continue to go astray and then go to heaven are self-deceived. For some, they can't react to other brothers and sisters from their salvation because they don't have a salvation. And Paul gives a list of sins here, and it is not an exhaustive list. Nor is it a list to tell you that if you do this, you lose your salvation because you can never lose your salvation. Listen, this is a description of those who are not saved. If this is the habitual lifestyle of anyone, Paul is saying they will not inherit the kingdom of God because they have not been made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. He says those who continually, habitually live like these things will not see God. Fornicators, he says. 
Fornicator speaks of those who commit sexual immorality while not married. So many today in our culture are living together. They're hooking up. They're, they're just friends with benefits. They're sleeping around and they call themselves a Christian while habitually doing that. Paul says there's got to be something different. That's not what a believer does. But then he says idolaters, those who worship false gods or those who participate in false religious systems. Anybody who continually, habitually places something above Jesus Christ will not see the kingdom of God. Everybody's not going to heaven that goes to church, and I don't care what church it is. Adulterers speaks to those who continue to commit sexual immorality within marriage. The effeminate, let, let me just go ahead and say it, and I'm, this is not my topic, this is what the Bible chose for me. But listen carefully, the effeminate, he says the effeminate will not inherit the kingdom of God. That word means soft to the touch. It's a word that's used to describe soft clothes. Here it is a euphemism for those men who choose to dress in women's clothing or those men who choose to put on women's makeup, those drag queens, those people that, that are a little softer in life and don't do what they're supposed to do. It's used really, church, I'm just going to tell you like it is, and I say this with a broken heart, but listen to me. The word really means the homosexual or the lesbian in the relationship who is the passive one in the relationship. And anybody who's seen a, a homosexual relationship knows there's one that's strong and there's one that's not. And the Bible says if that is your continual habitual lifestyle, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. But then he comes right out and he says, and neither will homosexuals. That word literally, listen to me. The Bible says that a homosexual, the word literally means an abuser of themselves with another mankind. It combines the word for a member of the male sex and the word for intercourse. Thus, it can mean homosexuality or sodomy. It describes the one who's the stronger in the relationship between men and men or men and women. And the Bible says that that is your continual lifestyle. The Bible says you want to inherit the kingdom of God, but can I tell you that, that verse 11 is still there. <laughs> Such were some of you. Can I tell you today, if that's your sin, I'm not judging you. I just want to call you to Jesus. He, he loves you. But see, it's in a list of sins. These aren't the only sins, and that's why I'm doing this. But then he gives us, he says, thieves won't get in. That's the word we get kleptomaniac from. It's the one who always wants more, so he has to take and steal it from others. Here's a clue. Listen to me. Listen carefully. The Bible says even drunkards want to inherit the kingdom of heaven. If that is your habitual lifestyle, if that's something you do over and over again, the Bible says you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Not my words, God's word. And then he says revilers, those who destroy with their tongues... Swindlers, those who take advantage of others through manipulation and lying. Paul says, listen carefully, that those who practice and have a habitual occurrence of those things will not see heaven. They are not right with God, therefore they will not enter the kingdom of righteousness. Can I tell you one more thing, and this is where it gets controversial, and this is where you check me out if you're online. Paul says these are sins, they are not diseases. 
Paul says these are sins, they're not genetic disorders. God has never sent anyone to hell because of a disease or a genetic disorder. These are sins and they must be repented of and they can be repented of because verse 11 says so. So that's why he says, that's what some of you were. Praise God that there have been homosexuals that have been saved. Amen. Praise God there's been a drunkard or two and I used to be one of them who've been saved. Amen. Praise God, there are adulterers and there's revilers and swindlers right probably in here in the room. I used to be reviling with my tongue. I know what it means and and Jesus has saved me. But that's not what we have been. That's not who we are anymore. And and Paul says that they've been changed. And, And beloved, if you're listening to me even online, I want you to know today, by way of radio even, you can be changed by the gospel. That's the point. You were washed, speaks of the new life in Christ and the regeneration that comes through faith in Christ. Washed means that the purge and the stain of my sin can be cleansed. And it happens at the moment of my conversion. He says you were sanctified, speaks of the new behavior. That if I have been washed, there's a new behavior and it's one that's been set apart from sin and set unto Jesus. My life will have changed if I've been washed in the blood. He says you've been justified. That's a new standing in Christ. We've been legally declared not guilty before God. We stand before God in Jesus' righteousness and not our sin. And His righteousness is put to our account. But do you notice, I don't know if you notice, but those verbs are in the past tense. In other words, that's what happened when you come to Jesus. When you come to Jesus, you get washed, you get sanctified, and you get justified. All in one shot. Therefore, because of that, you don't have to treat each other like you used to be that. That's his point. We react from our salvation. We don't communicate things that are against it. We don't have to do wrong when we've been done wrong. We can, we can be changed. And it's all because of Jesus, he says, and the power of the Holy Spirit. So can I just... In love, can I just say that if that is your lifestyle, would you just turn to Jesus today? Run to Christ and not to court. Trust, don't tweet. Exercise faith instead of expressing it on Facebook. And run to the Messiah instead of running your mouth. So what do we do when we've been done wrong? We resolve the issue, remember the setback, resolve to suffer and react from salvation. Brother, if you would come this morning, Nathan, and your team. I want to be clear. Paul says that those who are in those sins will not inherit the kingdom. So let me help you with something. Really, it's all about the path or the overall direction of your life. David commits adultery. Jonah runs from God's call. Peter denies the Lord. Elijah runs from Jezebel. Abraham denies even that Sarah is his wife. But look, then we see David on his face weeping and repenting. 
Jonah is now headed to Nineveh. Peter is now boldly preaching. Elijah is back again confronting Abraham. And there's Abraham now on his way to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah. Saved people may fall into sin, but they don't stay there. It's not the path they stay on. It's not the habit of their life. Listen, when Rachel and I left Ohio, when we left Ohio to come to to Texas, what direction did we go in? We went in a southwesterly direction. During that long two-day drive, sometimes we would head more south than we did west. Sometimes we'd head more west than we did south. Sometimes we'd get off on an exit to get Gath and be headed north. But here's the deal. Over those two days, if you'd ask us, what is the overall direction you're headed in? We would have said southwest. Brothers and sisters, I'm here today to tell you, if you have been truly saved, the overall direction of your life will be toward King Jesus. And you might get off on an exit every now and then. But you'll get back in and get on the road and head to Jesus as fast as you can. You will always correct course if you've truly been washed or sanctified and justified by Jesus. Listen to me this morning. I'm not asking you if you've ever been baptized. I'm not asking you if you are a member of a church. I'm not asking you if you have ever been confirmed. I'm not asking you if you've ever prayed a prayer. What I am asking you this morning is, is when Jesus looks at the overall direction of your life, does He know where you've been headed? Have you been headed to Jesus? Have you ever truly been washed, sanctified, and justified? Have you been washed by the blood of Jesus, by placing your faith in His death, burial, and resurrection to make you right with God the Father? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. But listen to me carefully, even online. There is not one sin that Jesus didn't die for. And there's not one sin that He can't save you from. Because my Jesus saves any and all who will come to Him. So would you like to be saved today? Is today going to be that day for you? Will you turn from your sin and turn to Jesus? In just a moment, we're going to stand. And if that's you, come grab one of us down here by the hand and we'll take you to Jesus. But then also, this would be a great day that if you have been mistreating your brothers or your sisters in any shape, form, or fashion, today would be the day when you have been wronged or you've been wronging somebody to bring them to this altar and make it right. So I wonder if you'd stand to your feet as we sing and we pray. And we'll ask the Lord to bless our time. Oh, the Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would move in great power. And I pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.